back to the official podcast of Garmin GPS Computers, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the symphony's director of education and community engagement. And I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. Well, we've been lost in the Bavarian Alps this week with one of the largest, if not the largest, orchestra we'll have on stage all season. Rehearsals have started for Richard Strauss's tone poem, An Alpine Symphony, which will be performed this week along with Iman Habibi's Every Tree Speaks and a new percussion concerto by past podcast guest Adam Schoenberg, performed by another past podcast guest and KCS principal percussionist Josh Jones. So we have a huge orchestra on stage this week. It includes 106 musicians actually on the stage Nine musicians offstage, organ, Wagner tubas, wind machines, a heckle phone, right? And quite literally, the kitchen sink. If you can believe it or not, there will be a kitchen sink on stage. But joining us today are two of our colleagues from the Kansas City Symphony Brass Section who should be giving their lips a break, but have graciously agreed to chat with us instead. Please welcome Associate Principal Trumpet Stephen Franklin. How you doing? Thanks for having me. And... New to the symphony this season is bass trombonist Jaleel Smith. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. You guys, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. We're super excited to have uh, both of you as first-timers uh, on the podcast. But uh, before we get too deep into this, we want to welcome Jaleel, not only to the podcast, but to Kansas City and to the Kansas City Symphony. And uh, off the bat, we'd love for you to just... Tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you're coming here from, uh, why the bass trombone is awesome, anything else you'd like to share. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, being new to Kansas City, um, this has been it's a terrific place, first of all, um, with such a rich cultural history. Um, the low brass section, the high brass section, some of my classmates as far back as undergrad um, are in this orchestra, and it's been a real treat to kick the season off um, with you all. Uh, I am coming from Hawaii. I played a one year in the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. And before that I played in the Malaysian Philharmonic pre-pandemic. And um, the bass trombone is honestly, it's, it's like the cousin or better yet, the dark older sibling of the tenor trombonist. Uh, most trombonists start on the tenor trombone and few of them decide to, okay, I think I wanna pursue bass trombone. For me, that journey began in high school um, I began my studies with members of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra at that time. It was Bexel trombonist Bill Thomas. Um, I was a sophomore um, in high school, and I had just decided that, you know, with the instrument having a larger bore size, a larger mouthpiece, and honestly, just just a wonderful, wonderfully warm and dark sound. It just reflected me as a person, and I just felt at home on the instrument. Um, so I'd say my journey really, truly began as a serious bass trombonist as a sophomore in high school. All right. Very cool. And we can't forget about Stephen because Stephen is not, he's not the newest member of the orchestra, but you are a newer member of the orchestra, right? And you're you're true. new to the podcast. So uh, tell us a little bit about you and your your journey on the trumpet and where you're from and, and all that fun stuff. Absolutely. So I joined the Kansas City Symphony in 2019. I was fortunate to join during the COVID year, uh, so that that uh, made my first year a little bit a little bit interesting. But I must say, it's so great to be back. 
uh, in our hall and playing. Uh, everything is normal, especially playing something so big as Alpine Symphony. Who would have thought a couple of years ago <laughs> right. that we were going to be able to do that? Um, I'm originally from Wheaton, Illinois, outside Chicago. And my first instrument was actually not the trumpet. It was the piano. Uh, I started piano when I was six. And actually really throughout most of my my life before going to school for music, I really thought that I wanted to become a pianist. That was my kind of my main axe. Um, but it wasn't until I started playing in youth orchestra that I realized how awesome orchestra is uh, and how much I, I didn't want to just make music by myself or, or with a few people, but I wanted to be part of a whole section of, of players. And so uh, I started to pay more attention to the trumpet um, and was fortunate to spend uh, a few years in Philadelphia studying there. Um, and then after that, I actually was fortunate to have a few options to choose from after school, whether I was going to move to play with the Hawaii Symphony uh, with Jaleel or uh, to go um, to the New World Symphony. So in the end, I moved to Miami Beach. Uh, and I always joke that, you know, for me, it was only tropical locations, Hawaii <laughs> or, or uh, Miami Beach. You know, I had to be close to the beach. Uh, but you know how it is. If you live in Florida, you don't actually really go to the beach that much. So, oh, well, that was the way it was. I was too busy practicing. Have you seen the shirts here um, in, in the Midwest that like, you know, you have like the East Coast, and you have the West Coast, and then you have like the hashtag no coast shirts. Yeah, right. Here. Yeah, that's where we are. We're no coast. Exactly. So here I am in one of the most <laughs> landlocked cities in the United States. now. So, um, but anyways, I've, I've absolutely loved my time here in Kansas City. It's a wonderful town, wonderful orchestra. Um, and it's great working with you all. So I'm curious, when we when we were talking about this episode, we knew we wanted to get some brass players together to talk about the upcoming week and the big program that we have. Um, but you guys, I can see you guys like looking at each other. Did you go to school together? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We did. Serendipitous. Yeah, I, I had no I idea. Came in, I, enter, I came into Curtis uh, in 2013. And Jaleel, did you come in in 2014? Yep, I came in the fall of 2014. So really through most of our time in school, we were... We were playing together. And Jaleel, being, Curtis being such a small school, Jaleel was not just a bass trombonist, but he was the bass trombonist uh, at Curtis. So everything we did that involved bass trombone, Jaleel was there. So we, we had a good time. Oh, that's so fun. Did you? So just so you all know, Mike and I went to college together too. So look, it's like Battle of the Colleges. It's Shepherd School versus Curtis. <laughs> we should have some kind of sporting event to mark the occasion. Curtis may oh, be up by a few points. You know. <laughs> not in sports. In, I can not tell in you sports. That. That's true. That is true. <laughs> the Curtis football team is is legendary for its lack of coordination. Failure. Very defeated, yes. <laughs> very defeated since nineteen. Very, very <laughs> defeated. Well, um, uh. You know, I, I want to ask you guys, so, I mean, it's so terrific that you've that you've played together before. And, of course, uh, you're just two of the army of brass players uh, that we have uh, on stage this week, but two of the most important, if I may say. <laughs> so, so um, I guess my first question, you know, this Alpine Symphony is such an enormous work. And, you know, we're we're playing with four flute players, which is like a big section for us. Usually we're three and occasionally we're two. How, how do so many of you all play together really cohesively? Cause this piece is, is massively complex. Of course, there's so many layers of themes and, and I want to talk about that uh, 
in a little bit. But how how do you all you know blend? How do you all play in rhythm together? I mean, of course, you have the conductor and you know everything else you would normally have, but it's such a big section. Absolutely, I w- I would say that anytime we're playing an orchestra, of course, we're trying to treat the orchestra like it's one big chamber orchestra. Uh, in this case, it's a a huge, gigantic chamber orchestra, bigger than usual. Um, and so I think that some of the challenges of um, figuring out how to make all of our sounds form into a cohesive whole um, are, are greater with an orchestra this size, but it's also that much more rewarding um, when it happens. The sound of, you know, I don't even know how many horns and Wagner tubas we have on stage um, playing all together. I could tell nine. you there, there are nine on, no. Oh, no, now I, yes. Now I'm going to have to recount. I think it's nine on stage <laughs> and six off. Yes. More than can be counted. Yeah. Um, and, and when everyone's playing um, together in, a, in an integrated way, um, it, it's a sound unlike anything else. So um, I would say it's definitely a challenge, but, but um, I think when it comes to an orchestra this size, really cluing into our principles, um, I'm trying to clue into what Julian is doing and uh, listening to the horns and what Albert is doing, what Roger is doing and Joe is doing on tuba. I think really helping kind of find our, our leaders and them all agreeing and then we all just kind of um, meld into, into their sounds and their approach. That helps us all stay on the right track so we can uh, present the piece in an uh, impactful and cohesive way. I'd like to second what Stephen said. Um, I think those are very good points. Um, especially playing a work as big and as monumentous as Alpine Symphony really will require skills that you pick up in chamber music. Um, I feel like, you know, for us playing in brass quintet, um, coming through college, um, those, you know, the very skills of, you know, for me personally, one thing I enjoy doing is, you know, listening up for style and then listening down for pitch. Playing trombone, um, we've got five trombonists sitting in a very small, tight area right behind two harpists. And we also have the real pleasure of having the contrabass trombone on stage during uh, this performance with two tubas. So that presents several challenges. I think one of the biggest ones, um, which uh, you brought up, Stephanie, is it's kind of the cohesion of how everything fits together. Um, But with Strauss being such a fantastic composer, I feel like this music is engineered in a way where you have layered and very textured Um, harmonies and melodies that are passed around the orchestra. So the great thing about that is by the time a melody um, or a phrase is handed off to the low brass, it's probably been passed around the orchestra two to three or maybe even four or five times. Um, So the great thing about it is you get to sit and really hear fantastic colleagues like Albert, um, getting to hear Julian, Roger, um, and many of the other principals um, really delicately shape you know, this piece before it reaches many of the climaxes that it has. And as you listen and are listening to what's being passed around, it gives you an idea of what, you know, or how you should treat each of these phrases. So you, you touched on something really interesting a moment ago, uh, I think that, that is maybe overlooked certainly by me, cause I just play the flute and maybe some of our listeners too. It's, it's interesting. And I mean, this happens frequently that there's bass trombone and tuba in in the same piece there's quite a bit of overlap in the range right and here you have you have not only that but you have uh bass trombone contrabass trombone and two tubas so so there's really a contrasting color there even though the 
the range is, you know, roughly equivalent between all those instruments. So talk about a, a little of the difference between what people hear from the tuba versus the, the trombones, the, the low trombones, the bass and the contrabass, and maybe um, maybe how, how Strauss writes for those instruments differently, perhaps, or maybe he doesn't. Absolutely. Uh, I think one thing that's really, really special about this particular work is with it being one of Strauss's programmatic pieces, um, I think he does a real brilliant job of layering these textures, not only in a phrase structure kind of way, but also in an instrumental way. We've got two tubas that really kind of function as, um, I like to think of them as almost like the very bottom layer of the mountain, right? I feel like they're the very, they're on the ground. You know, they're very, you know, as things begin to build and by the time we reach the, the tip of the, the summit. By the time we reach the summit, we've had a lot of, uh, honestly, we've had a lot of layered themes that are honestly just stacking right on top of each other. By the time we reach the summit, we've heard such an amazing um, soundscape. I feel like the tubas and the contrabass trombone are a tricky pair. Uh, the contrabass trombone is a little tricky for the listener because when the tubas generally are responding to themes that have trickled down from the trumpet, the contrabass trombone normally just acts more or less as a filler for color and for harmony. The third trombone, which in this case would be the bass trombone, echoes more of the themes. Um, one of the themes that I really appreciate getting to play, bebom, 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 yarrom. That theme is passed from the high brass, the low brass, the contrabass trombone, doesn't play that theme until it's played in unison. So one thing I appreciate is really seeing how Strauss um, goes out of his way to really show the tubas, they play in unison, they'll play the theme. The contrabass trombone is more for color to add depth. Uh, the bass trombone and the principal trombone, um, he writes for those instruments, uh, very little solos that bounce themes, such as the one I just sang um, around. And the second trombone, mirrors what's going on in the contrabass trombone part. It's more for color and it helps to fill out the section. You know, that's that's actually something interesting that that when I was thinking about this program came to mind, but now hearing you talk about it. So, you know, we're doubling a lot of instruments in here that wouldn't necessarily be doubled. I mean, it's very rare to have a piece with two tubas, for example, right? Um, and I wonder, we've had Joe, our principal tuba on as a guest before, um, I wonder if you have to kind of change your mindset a little bit, and certainly as a bass trombonist, when you're the only guy playing that, but now you have this contrabass trombone, when you're the you you're used to being the only one playing those parts, and then unless you play in a wind ensemble, you're the only guy playing the tuba, or you're the you know you're the only guy playing the bass trombone. Does that do you have to change your mindset when you come into this, um, going from the only one doing this to now kind of sharing and Leading that, is that something you have to change or is that something you just automatically do? I feel like there's slight changes that do actually happen. Um, it's almost like um, having an assistant, but not really because it's its own part though, with the mm -hmm. contrabass trombone. Because the role of the bass trombone in the symphony orchestra and in the opera many times is to help connect the sound of the tuba with that of the tenor trombone. But with the help of the contrabass trombone, I can really kind of sit in a third trombone role more than having to really um, have this very big, dark sound and really kind of 
as opposed to reaching across the aisle towards the tuba as much, I can kind of sit a little bit more comfortably towards the tenor trombone as well. The contrabass trombone really helps to bridge that sound world. So I'd say that there are slight changes. And you'd even see that in the titling of parts in Wagner's Das Rheingold, trombone four is titled contrabass trombone. But trombone three, bass trombone as it would normally be, is only titled trombone three. And you see that in a lot of late romantic works, which I think could hint at slight changes in the job for uh, the musician. Well, I, I want to... Uh, back up just a little bit and talk about the the piece uh, more broadly for a second. So so just so everybody's on the same page, you know, this incredible Alpine symphony, as it's called, not really a symphony in the traditional sense. It's more of of um, what we all refer to as a tone poem. And Strauss wrote many of these, like uh, you know, Alsace Brock Zarathustra and Don Juan and Tilleulenspiegel, uh, for example. Um, and I'm curious, uh, particularly for Stephen to reflect on this because he didn't mention it himself, but Stephen is a uh, talented composer and arranger as well. And I, I don't know that Jaleel is not. Jaleel, do you compose as well? I do not, Stephen. You do not? Okay, <laughs> do so not. Stephen, Stephen is the composer in the room. Uh, so I, what, what, I, what I want to talk about is, you know, this incredible piece, um, it, it, paints a, it paints a picture of a, you know, a hike up, up a mountain uh, in in uh, in the Bavarian Alps, um, and you know he gets lost, and there's a storm, and there's a sunrise and a sunset, and and the thing that's so incredible, I think, about Strauss is that you can almost imagine if you had no idea what the piece was about, you would pretty much get what the piece is about just from hearing it, and you would recognize the sounds in the piece um, as being part of this uh, mountainous landscape. But the thing that I think Strauss is such a master at and the thing that impresses me as a, a, a you know professional musician but a totally lay person as far as being a composer is how he layers these themes so uh, eloquently and meticulously to paint paint this picture in the same way that you know we're all familiar with John Williams doing this in you know Star Wars films except Strauss was you know, the originator of this or an originator of this, mm -hmm. not the only one. And, and really at even another level, if there can be such a thing. So, so Stephen, as the composer in the room, I, I would love for you to just reflect on what you see, you know, Strauss's music in general, but particularly this piece, which is so massive and so complex and so um, densely layered, you know, what, what do you see in this? How, how does Strauss, manage this puzzle yeah i think you touched on some some really great points there and you know we were talking earlier first of all just about the challenges of playing in such a large orchestra with so many of these layers that you mentioned going on i think much of the difficulty is alleviated simply by strauss's incredible uh orchestrational abilities um the way in which he layers the parts works so naturally and so effectively that as a performer you actually don't have to uh, you don't have to mess with his score too much to make it work you can pretty much just do exactly what he asks asks of you and it fits together remarkably well but on a compositional front um, it is very interesting that Strauss called it uh, an Alpine symphony because it, it doesn't bear many if not most of the markers of what a symphony uh, would entail it's it's not in sonata form. Uh, it's in one movement. Um, 
the the forces required for this work would be very different uh, different from what other symphonists of his day were were writing for, um, and so. But I think uh, thinking about the symphony as a a form of orchestral storytelling, um, the way in which Strauss tells his story, uh, many of which actually come from his memoirs, um, his own experience hiking um, when he was living in Bavaria, um, uh, he tells that story uh, in in a symphonic way, and I think that's where he gets the the title, an Alpine uh, symphony, but uh, Strauss. He famously said that uh, he was sitting at the dinner table talking with some of his friends about um, orchestration and composition, and he said, "I can write music that is so specific that I could I could communicate in music that I pick up my fork from the left side of my plate and put it down on the right side of my plate, and you would know only through sound and music." So that's quite a claim mm. from from Mr. Strauss. But hearing <laughs> a piece like Alpine Symphony. Uh, I think you can't help but believe him because the the dis- the wonderful descriptions of the music that we have throughout our part at beginning you know at night um, at the waterfall um, um, these these kinds of these visions that happen um, and then on the summit um, going through the pastures and you hear the sheep uh, you know, all of these things uh, we have them written down in our parts but they don't even need to be written down you you know what's happening. Um, particularly when the woodwinds are all making sheep noises, I mean, it's it's pretty hard to miss that. You know that uh, you know that it's sheep. So, I, I I would I would like to just amend that, sort of perhaps uh, add to that statement slightly, and say that as a flute player, I'm not so much sheep. I feel my my purpose in life is birds first, and then <laughs> birds first. water. Birds first, and water. Right. You need right. birds. You need water. And then sheep. No, sheep. Never you gotta sheep. Go to, you got to go somewhere else for sheep. You got to go to a, maybe <laughs> well, a bassoon, actually, maybe an oboe. <laughs> Strauss used the, the a muted trumpet in uh, Don Quixote to uh, for sheep. Muted trumpet's so, uh, an excellent uh, choice I, for I, sheep. <laughs> well, I think he wanted to mix it up a little bit. So maybe he's just proving his genius, and then he can use almost any instrument to turn it into a sheep. <laughs> I, I appreciate that Mike had to set the record straight. That is <laughs> what his responsibilities are. Do you get do you get doubling for sheep? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I I mean, if I could even. Do it at all? I should get doubling, but no. Birds and water is really the limit of my uh, of my palate. So I, you know, I I think all of this is is really great. And when the audience hears this, they're going to hear something truly magnificent. But I think something we're leaving out. They're going to see something really incredible. And I mean, it's a humongous orchestra. And I want to give a shout out as the administrator in the room. Um, to our team that actually puts together the stage plots and figures out how everything's going to fit. And um, that's our senior production manager, Josh Scheib, and our stage manager. We have a new stage manager this year, um, Tyler Miller. This is Tyler's second classical show. And he's worked with the symphony before, but really to like figure out where everything goes. And we're talking about 106 players on the stage um, and I, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I just want to read the instrumentation because it's pretty, pretty insane. But so we have two piccolos, four flutes, three oboes with an English horn and a hecklephone, which Mike, what the heck is a hecklephone? What the heck is a hecklephone? It's a <laughs> big old oboe. 
is a big old like, oboe. Like an English horn is a big old oboe, but it's kind of like just a big oboe. This is a big old oboe. It's huge. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, then we have three clarinets that includes a bass clarinet and an E-flat clarinet, four bassoons with a contrabassoon, 15 horns, four of them playing Wagner tubas, four trumpets, six trombones, two tubas, two timpani, bass drum, cowbells, cymbals, glockenspiel, snare drum, tam-tam, thunder machine, triangle, wind machine, and as Jaleel said, two harps, a celeste, organ, and then, oh yeah, the whole string section too. But all of that is is on stage, um, and it's just, it's it's a spectacle for the ears and the eyes, I think, and it's just, it's a real feat of like Steven said, you know, we're coming together. Who would have thought in the spring of 2020 that we would be putting 106 people on stage together, you know, right now. So it's a real, um, I, I'm really excited to see it and hear it and um, get, all, get all of this together. I would like to ask, though, as brass players, so, I mean, it has to be a lot of playing um, and it's not the only piece on the program, but how do you guys maintain your endurance and... Um, you know, I'm sure you have to pace. There will come a day this Friday where you're going to rehearse it and then you're going to play the whole concert that night too. So how do you maintain that endurance so that you're at your best and can give your best performance at the rehearsals and at the concerts? I, I think as brass players, and Jaleel can jump in on this, um, there's always an element, um, really for any musician, um, but I, I think especially in the brass world, you, you have to be an athlete on your instrument in order to also be a poet uh, on your instrument. And so the, the athletics involved this week, um, th th there's, quite, there's quite a bit of demand um, placed on these tiny little muscles uh, in our face that we use to make uh, the vibration um, to play a brass instrument. And so um, in order to prepare for weeks like this, um, there are specific things that, that I do um, to make sure that I, that I have the endurance um, and I'm in my peak form to be able to just handle the sheer workload. Although I will also say that I think in, in many ways um, we're, we're preparing for weeks like this our entire lives um, in, in, in building up our technique and building up our endurance. Um, and so uh, in a certain sense we can just take these, these weeks in stride. Because as brass players, we, we're, we're always um, working on improving that athletic um, demand and coordination that's required of us um, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, for the trumpet, I, th I think it could maybe be a little different from bass trombone in terms of just the, the tessitura that we live in. Um, we, uh, every trumpet player wants to be able to play high notes, you know, play lots of high notes all the time. That's, that's a typical trumpet player uh, uh, maybe a little bit of ego there, you know, that's the, the stereotype of trumpet players. But this week, uh, it gives us a good outlet for that. There are plenty of high <laughs> notes. And I will say, not only in uh, the Alpine Symphony, but in the uh, percussion concerto, the Adam Schoenberg uh, percussion concerto uh, as well, both me and Julian, our, our principal, are playing on piccolo trumpets um, in, in this piece. Um, and uh, in, the, in the first piece we're playing, Jaeger Baum Spricht, um, I'm playing an E-flat trumpet. As well, so that's actually four different instruments, um, which all have slight advantages for helping uh, me play in a higher register more efficiently, or to get a certain sound, um, and that's just part of the demand of uh, of playing the instrument. 
Now, Julia, you could speak to um, to the range. I, I, I imagine bass trombone players always kind of being the opposite of trumpet players. They want to try and get lower if they can. <laughs> um, but I know you all also have to play quite high as well. Yeah, I would, I would definitely second um, Stephen's comments on the athleticism. And I think a lot of that has to do with the virtuosic nature of Strauss's writing and a lot of his programmatic works. Um, another similar piece, Ein Heldenleben, I think has a very similar structure um, where you pretty much have a lot of athletics going on in the brass section. And I think in terms of pacing, one thing I like to think about at least um, is with all the extra help, I like to think about the extra players as help, right? So in those rehearsals leading up to the concerts, you don't have to do too much. You know, you can go for it in the show. You know, it's, you know, you want to present, you know, the audience with, the best picture, sound picture that you can. And so you want to give them, you know, the best that you can. So I think pacing through, throughout rehearsals, really relying on the section blending and balance can really help save a lot of face. Uh, I'd also like to, to second another thing Stephen said, um, you know, as brass players, you know, going through conservatory and playing, you go to bed wishing that you could play Alpine Symphony with 106 musicians on stage. So at the, at the same time, it's like meeting the tooth fairy and then icing the muscles and the joints at the same time. So it's, it's like a delicate, it's a delicate balance. You don't, wanna, you don't wanna get too excited too soon, right? So I'd say it's definitely a delicate balance of pacing and also um, the gratification of being able to just play such a monumental work so early, I mean, in our careers, it's, it's a fantastic piece. It's a dream come true for many musicians. Uh, we spend hours working on these excerpts and listening to the music and being able to sit down and then in such a, mag, you know, in the magnitude of such a large orchestra and ensemble, it's incredible. So I'd say pacing and excitement. So I, I want to point out one thing too, which, which um, hopefully will help our listeners understand too, what they're hearing and what they're seeing um, you know, there's a lot of commonality between the technique of playing a woodwind instrument and a brass instrument or, you know, any wind powered instrument, even the singing, um, the voice is of course a wind powered instrument. Um, but one of the things that's, that's different and, and always so impressive, uh, to me as a flute player. And one of the things that also makes in some ways, um, the stress on those small facial muscles less, um, less for a woodwind player and maybe especially for a flute player is that um, without getting too wonky about it, uh, you know, brass players in general, their instruments have three or four buttons or in the case of a, a trombone, you know, a slide and maybe one or two buttons and everything else as far as selecting the pitch happens with those little facial muscles. You know, they can, they can make a fingering or select a position on the slide and blow and one of 12 or 15 different notes could come out potentially or more maybe. Uh, and you know, only one of those is the one that you meant. And all of that precision happens, you know, in the embouchure, in these tiny little facial muscles um, and that, that muscle memory and that precision to know, Oh, I'm going to get, you know, this note and not that one is, is, you know, the principal challenge, I think, of of playing a brass instrument versus other uh, other wind instruments. The flute, by comparison, you know, the physics are the same. I have kind of two or three choices that you know, three, two or three notes that could come out, you know, for any given fingering and 
really only two and they really feel quite different. And so I'm pretty, I'm not very likely to mistake one for the other. Uh, and all the, all the real action is happening in my fingers. You know, I have a zillion buttons to push all in the right combination and fast. So that has its own challenges, but those, those little facial muscles endure so much, um, stress as a bat, a brass player, I think relative to other, uh, wind instruments. And, and it's incredibly, um, thoughtful and, and poetic, what you said, uh, Stephen, about, you know, having to be a great athlete, to be a poet on your instrument. I think that's, that's, um, true for all of us and especially, especially for brass players. So, uh, let it be said here and never again that I give you all great credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we really appreciate it. And I, I, I will say, I'm, I'm glad I don't have as many buttons to worry about, Mike, as, as you do. No, uh, buttons that. are good. But buttons, <laughs> buttons make it easy. I like buttons. Well, Stephen's familiar with the buttons because your wife is a flutist too. So you're exactly, exactly. You know, and you know all that's about what the makes me very glad that that I don't have to do it. I know of what I speak. It sounds too difficult for me. So no thanks. You know, some this is reminding me of a conversation we had when Joe Lefevre was uh, one of our guests, and I remember that we did a uh, Joe is our principal tuba player, and I remember we did a little bit where Mike, do you remember this where you and Joe had to give reasons why the other's instrument was better. Oh, sure. Yeah. So you had you had to tell Joe, tell all of us why the tuba was the superior instrument, and then Joe had to tell us why the flute was the superior instrument. And this reminds me of the uh, the carrying case. I think was the 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 supreme reason why the flute was best. Because <laughs> Very popular. <you> can... <laughs> it breaks down for camping. <laughs> Yes. So the buttons and the uh, the carrying case, I think, are are good. Um. Well, can we chat a little bit about just the rest of the program too? We've we've mentioned a little bit um, Adam Schoenberg's um, percussion concerto, which uh, is called "Losing Earth." Is that right? Right. Yeah. And Adam was a guest. Actually, we'll say one and a half times on the podcast because he was one of our very earliest guests, where we kind of did a pre-show chat with him, and then. Um, uh, we had him on the podcast as well as a guest and um, we love Adam. We love his music. And uh, I'm really excited for our audience to get to hear this. Our principal percussion, uh, Josh Jones is the soloist, but I mean, if we're talking spectacle, so um, this concert is, is just one big, incredible spectacle. Uh, in addition to Alpine for the percussion concerto, you know, you'll see this, you know, big solo setup at the front of the stage um, and then all of the regular, and I'm using air quotes, regular percussion instruments that you might see in a in a concert setup, where they normally would be in the back of the stage. But then there's the added um, surprise. This is surprise for our listeners. You can go in knowing what's going to happen. There are actually um, four, maybe, spots throughout the hall where there will be drums set up in the audience and that you get kind of this surround sound experience of bass drums and snare drums in the hall um, during the concerto and Josh is moving around and our percussionists are moving around um, the space and really utilizing the entire concert hall for this percussion concerto, which I think it's just going to be a really unique concert experience all around. And when I mentioned the kitchen sink, there is a kitchen sink as an instrument in this concerto. So, <laughs> um, Josh has had a really good time coming up with 
um, unique sounds and, and unique ways to find those sounds. And I, I'm real excited to, to hear that. Yeah, I asked him about this, and he, uh, he explained that the composer actually indicated uh, for certain parts of the piece, the player, the soloist, should, should choose some, quote-unquote, found objects to use as instruments. So when you come into the hall... Uh, it's not going to look like anything you've likely ever seen before. It's going to look like the Kansas City Symphony is holding a yard sale. Uh, and it's it's pretty impressive. But I, I also, I, I, I want our guests to talk about this piece a little bit too, because I think, I think there's a little commonality, not only in the theme of nature uh, between, between uh, the Schoenberg and, and the Strauss, but, um, but I think Adam does, does something a little bit similar to Strauss uh, in that, you know, these brass lines that happen throughout the piece, um, in a way similar to Strauss are these kind of expanded versions of, of the themes that you hear that, that support, you know, in this case, what the soloist is doing, the Strauss is of course not a concerto, but, but do you, do you both uh, also feel a little bit of that connection between the way Strauss uses your instruments and the way, the way Adam uh, writes as well? Um, I'd like to go ahead and say, I think between these two pieces, um, I feel like Adam writes for the low brass, especially a lot of the lines that Joe, the fever and I have, we have a lot of things happening at the same time uh, that are actually happening in tandem with what's going on to our right. And I feel like Adam does a superb or supreme job of establishing time in varying sections throughout the orchestra. It's interesting how we have a concerto written for percussion, but then he's using, I feel like in the low brass section, many of the lines he writes for us are literal, it, it really helps to mark lapsed time, helping to keep a ginormous ensemble together. So I think it's, it's, it's actually quite, quite funny how the soloing instruments, I mean, there's so many happening um, that jo uh, Josh Jones is playing, but in the accompanimental role that the orchestra is playing, I feel like Adam does a really, really nice job of writing lines that help other musicians keep time. Um, that's why I feel like he, I feel like the low brass is more or less like a really big metronome um, throughout most of it, which allows the percussionist who is like the walking metronome in a symphony orchestra, allows him to express more of his creative abilities without having to worry so much about cohesion and keeping things together. It's like, the percussionist can now step into more almost like the role of a solo violinist in a, in a sense where he can kind of express some of the colors that I think an audience member wouldn't re readily recognize from a percussionist that normally sits at the far back of the orchestra. So I almost feel like it's almost like a changing of, of roles a little bit. Um, and I feel like those, li those long lines, especially in the low brass, they're very repetitive, but upon closer inspection, sitting in the orchestra, it helps keep everything together. Yeah, there are definitely a number of similarities between the two pieces, the Strauss and the Schoenberg, as far as the way that he orchestrates, the way that he, um, Mike, as you said, passes lines around the orchestra. And even within the trumpet section, uh, in the Strauss, in Alpine Symphony, Strauss will have um, the trumpets pass off lines one to another so that you can kind of give each other a little bit of a break um, and have a chance to hear some solo material from uh, a different member of the section, whether it's the second trumpet or the third trumpet. Um, he really does that quite well. 
And that is something we also see in the Adam uh, Schoenberg piece. He passes these lines back and forth. Um, there's a beautiful section where um, Julian and I have this line that just goes back and forth um, as the orchestra is playing this this rhythmic pro this uh, this chord progression, and it's very inspiring. And we're just just playing these simple melodies back and forth in the upper register, and it, and it's quite a very cool effect. And and when we get to the very end of the piece, you'll notice there's this. Uh, very intense, slow chromatic scale that's gradually getting higher and higher and higher and higher and gaining intensity. And um, Adam Schoenberg was, was very smart to, uh, to make the playing of this passage uh, possible by passing the lines back and forth between mm -hmm. the brass. So we can share the load as we go up the scale. One person plays the next note, the next person plays the next note, then, you know, George will play that note, and then it goes back to Julian, then me, then George, then Julian. So that makes it so that we each have a chance to participate in a unique way and also share the workload uh, a little bit one between another. And, and there's one other thing I would say that actually is a, is a pretty notable similarity, uh, and that is the use of offstage musicians between the two pieces. Um, you know, typically, uh, the brass are, are often the chosen ones when it comes to being somewhere offstage or in another part of the hall to play um, part of a piece, you think of Pines of Rome has offstage brass, you think of maybe Mahler 3 has a big trumpet solo offstage. Um, but in this case, we get to feature another instrument uh, that is that is in a different place in the hall, and I, I think that's a wonderful thing. So it's it's a joy to see uh, four bass drums sprinkled throughout the Hellsberg yeah. Hall uh, this this week. Uh, that's, that's pretty fun. I don't think anyone's ever said that, Stephen. I don't think anyone ever in the history of man has said it's a joy. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Jaleel. Pretty soon here, you're going to play a show called Link Up with us. And Link Up includes uh, a thousand students playing recorder in the hall. Uh, with So four bass drums. It, <laughs> I think Stephen, having played a Link Up concert, probably really means that. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie knows. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I just I'm so excited to to get to this program and really to it it is it's just going to be a spectacle and in in the best way possible and I I'm thrilled to be able to hear it and I hope that everyone listening has a chance to experience that concert as well. You know, we've talked about all of the unusual instruments and the additional instruments and so we thought it would be fun. We we started this segment um I don't know, a little while ago, a few seasons ago called the Top 5 it's the top five. 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 And in light of all the additional musicians and specialty instruments that we're going to have on stage this weekend, we're going to have this week's top five celebrate the auxiliary instruments that you might find on stage. So I put it to each of you. What are your top five auxiliary instruments? And maybe let's start with Mike. And let's just, they don't, they don't have to be one to five or five to one. They can just be a list. We don't have to pick the absolute best, although I'm sure that there will be an absolute best. Mike, do you want to start us off? Sure, I'll I'll start us off. Uh, I you know I love auxiliary instruments because uh, you know they always have really extreme range and extreme color, uh, and you know we often get paid a little extra to play them too, which is 
awesome. Um, so for me, my top five, here we go. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't name at least one flute. And uh, my favorite auxiliary flute is, of course, the alto flute. And this is a this is a flute uh, that that is uh, larger than the flute you see us play all the time on stage. Sometimes it has a head joint that curves around like a candy cane. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but either way, it's a it's a large flute. It's pitched uh, in G, so uh, lower than the concert flute. Mike, can I ask a question about the alto flute? Is it? And I'm being serious. This is not mocking. <laughs> Although it's going to sound that way when we're talking about people playing bass drum bows. Go stuff. on. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the alto flute is going to be heavier than a regular flute, right? That's right. Is that does that become uncomfortable? Do you have to situate it a different way? Like, it does it hurt to play an alto flute? Yeah, it can be uncomfortable to play for long periods, uh, which is actually the reason for the curved head joint that you sometimes see because it mm. makes the reach. Uh, less to play the flute. You're not stretched out so far and it puts a little bit less stress mm. on uh, on your hands and your shoulders. Uh, and of course, if you ever see a bass flute, which is larger still, that always has a curved head joint. And then there's even one called a contrabass flute, which is this gigantic thing on a tripod that stands up and curves around and it's, it's a goofy instrument. Um, <laughs> but yes, it, to answer your question, um, it, it, it is, it is uh, more strenuous to play because of the weight and the and the size. So I want to go on though. I mean, the alto okay. flute, Excuse me. I don't know, not actually the best one, but I have to mention it because I'm contractually obligated. Um, another favorite of mine oft overlooked is the bass trumpet, which uh, is particularly featured in Riot of Spring. And Jaleel will confirm for me here that this is actually most often played by a trombone player, but the bass trumpet uh, in the trumpet family, it's a, what it sounds like. It's a big low trumpet and it has a, uh, a totally unique sound. And I think it's a fantastic instrument. Um, coming back to my woodwind friends, we talked about the heckle phone, which is a big old oboe. And then <laughs> you've got the English horn, which is a pretty big oboe. My actual favorite and probably my favorite on this list is the oboe de more, uh, which is a medium oboe. It's slightly bigger than uh, the oboe you usually see on stage. And it's occasionally used in orchestra, more common in uh Baroque music, but it has a lot of the really sonorous qualities of an English horn, but it's it's higher in pitch than an English horn. It's closer to um, to the modern uh, concert oboe that you see on stage, but I, I love that instrument. Uh, unfortunately, nobody ever has one that works well, so when you hear it, the player is almost invariably struggling with it because it's a instrument from 1940 that's been in the basement of some university, and they pull it out <laughs> once every decade, but it's an incredible <laughs> instrument. Um, I, again, nod to the trumpets. I love the rotary trumpet that, uh, you guys, you know, will use in, in Brahms or Beethoven fairly often, uh, and other things. I, I think it just has such a warmth in the sound. I almost wish you played it all the time, but I know that's not really appropriate. It's an incredible instrument. Uh, and then, and then finally, uh, because Jaleel is here, I think the alto trombone is a really special instrument. <laughs> and uh, and you'll see our principal uh, trombone, uh, Roger Oyster, play this instrument every now and then for for something. It's just, it's also what it sounds like. It's a little trombone, and uh, I, I don't know how to describe the sound. You just, maybe Jaleel can describe the sound better, but it's just totally unique again and and beautiful. I think in the right hands and deadly in the wrong hands. 
Absolutely. I mean, I'd say it's the closest thing is to probably a Viennese boys choir soloist, something, sure. something of that nature. Very just like the sound. It's, it's kind of angelic a little bit. Um, you know, you probably only really hear it in either a Brahms or Beethoven symphony or maybe um, Tremont Concerto by, um, uh, there's a few alto, well, a couple um, alto trombone concertos that, uh, that uh, feature the instrument, which are really, really nice. But All right. Well, Jaleel, what do you have for us? Do you have any other trombones we need to check out? Or what are your, what are your top five auxiliary instruments? As far as auxiliary instruments go, um, I would go ahead, of course, put the contrabass trombone in there. I mean, it's just, it's just really fun um, either getting to play it or sit next to it because it's just like, it's just so much fun. Um, having the alto, alto trombone, um, anytime getting to play a Brahms symphony where most of the trombone section downsizes equipment, um, sometimes the bass trombonist will play a, a tenor trombone with an F attachment. The second trombonist will go to a straight horn, a large bore straight tenor trombone with no valve. And the principal trombonist will downsize to an alto trombone for colors, um, especially in something like Mozart's Requiem, um, where you've just got, I mean, it's a sound piece. Um, so I'd say contrabass trombone, the alto trombone. I really like, I, I guess I could put English horn in here. I really like the English Absolutely. horn. Absolutely. Okay, I, I really like the English horn. Um, it, to me, it's almost like, and this might sound crazy, but it's almost like the viola of the wind section a little bit. It's got mm -hmm. like that just mellow, beautiful sound. Uh, so I'd say contrabass trombone, the alto trombone, the oboe, um, I'd go as far as saying the bass trumpet. It's a really, I like to hear the bass trumpet in a trumpet ensemble. That's something I really enjoy. I feel like a lot of these auxiliary instruments really, really can appreciate the colors and the variances of them when you hear them with the relatives of the same instrument family. So I'd put bass trumpet yeah. in there and then I would probably go ahead and put um, contrabassoon. Yes. It has the most unique sound. It really does. It's just there is it is unmistakable when the contrabassoon is being played what that is. You know exactly what it is. And it's like it's like yeah. sometimes depending on how close to the instrument you're sitting, you can kind of feel the ground shake a little bit. <laughs> depending on the, or a lot. <laughs> or a lot, depending on the chest of tour, where, where they're playing. It's 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 really Well, it's true. Yeah. It's because it's it's actually resting on the ground too. It has a little end pen and it's sitting on the ground, so you really can feel it. It's it's you're right, absolutely. All right, Stephen, what about you? Well, Jaleel, when you were mentioning bass trumpet being in a, a trumpet ensemble, um, there's a, there's a composer present in this conversation who I know oh. who, uh, has written not one but two pieces for I know. Uh, what, bass trumpet and others. That's what I was thinking. About. So <laughs> that's what I was thinking. About. Is that what you were thinking about? Yeah, when the uh, the Curtis trumpets went to national trumpet competition to uh, to play a, a piece that I wrote for them, and I thought, man, they they had just opened it up so that you could actually take bass trumpet. The bass trumpet's not usually recognized in the trumpet community because it's not played by a trumpet player; it's played by a trombone player. Is it so, valved like a trumpet, though? It is. It is, and there's a variety of keys that you can find them in. Um, so how you, does a how does a trombone player who is a slide player learn to play a bass trumpet is it just i mean you just learn to play i think valves? a lot of arduous practice ah, is the answer to yes. that question yes so some love it i would it. definitely say yeah. yeah some some love it some some hate it so jaleel and i have a colleague 
uh, a previous colleague who now plays in, um, he's Hungarian, he plays in Budapest. And he, over COVID, he made it his, his goal to learn the bass trumpet and to play it as well as it could possibly be played. Uh, and I think if you can do that as a bass uh, or as a, as a trombone player, then that's pretty good job security because there's not very many people who mm-hmm. can play the bass trumpet at a very, very, very high level in that way. It's such a unique uh, instrument in terms of the range it falls into. Um, but it's a gorgeous instrument. I can't help but agree with uh, those who have mentioned it. Um, but as far as mine go, um, I was trying to think. I should only choose one trumpet, probably, out of all the many uh, trumpets well, that... And what we haven't talked about, because we did talk about this with Julian when he was on the podcast, was how many trumpets you actually have in your home, in your possession. Because I know oh, Julian's dear. number was a lot, and I knew that you Ooh. were going to have a hard time whittling it down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my wife is going to hear this podcast. I was so going to say, know. don't say it if she's around. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say. I'm on, I'm on thin ice about the number of horns I have anyways, so I'm not sure I want her knowing the exact number, but, uh, but it's, quite, it's quite a few. But um, as, a, as a trumpet player, we have to own uh, many instruments. So C trumpet is mostly what we play in the orchestra. B flat trumpet you'll hear sometimes. Um, e flat trumpet, D trumpet. Um, just gives you a little bit more, um, a slightly different color and a little bit more efficiency in the upper register. It works really well for playing the Haydn or Hummel concertos, things from that time period. Um, the piccolo trumpet, um, the cornet is another popular choice. I actually really love playing the cornet. It's a little bit more of a, a buttery sound um, than the trumpet, a little bit more rounded. Although, I'm going to say the instrument that I uh, chose for today was uh, the flugelhorn. And uh, the flugelhorn, we don't play it very often in the orchestra, but it is a, uh, a, the mellowest of all trumpets, uh, I'll say. It is, is a very warm sound. You'll hear it a lot in jazz um, playing, but just playing any simple melody on the flugelhorn can, can make it just so beautiful, um, the sound that you get. And the thing I like about the flugelhorn is... Um, as a trumpet player, we're always working on our tone and getting our tone to be round and beautiful. And, and then you pick up a flugelhorn and it's like you can't help but have your tone be very mellow and round. And so, you know, if I'm having kind of a bad day on the trumpet, I'll just pick up a flugelhorn and make myself feel better about my life. Um, <laughs> that's been a, a nice, a nice trick. So um, the hecklephone was already mentioned. That was that was one of mine. I uh, we don't get to hear that instrument very often. And it's just it's a cool name. Hecklephone. You know, when when Jaleel was talking about, when you're talking about, you know, being a specialist on a bass trumpet, I know when we were looking for somebody to play the hecklephone, you go for a hecklephone expert, and they travel with the hecklephone, and they play the hecklephone part. I mean, it's a very niche market, but if you've got it, you've got it. I wonder how many Alpine it. symphonies they've played. Probably quite a few. Yeah. Probably, my, my guess. yes. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know how Mike's going to feel about this one, but I was going to say the piccolo. Oh, I'm I'm just curious to get get Mike's reaction on. Well, that one. I'm not sure if I was starting to feel like you know, out of respect, I named several brass instruments on my list, and no one had <laughs> yet to mention any type of flute. So, uh, thank you for that nod. And you know, also given that you're married to a flutist, I think I think it's probably incumbent upon you to name at least some type of flute, and why not exactly? Exactly, she might let me keep one more trumpet if I do that. So, uh oh. Um, but yeah, I, I just love the sound of the piccolo, but not when people think of the piccolo, they think of playing very high, of course. But I actually love the sound of the piccolo in like the mid and low register. 
Um, and some of these beautiful... It's because you can't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so many beautiful examples of, um, in the literature of, of piccolo solos, especially in Shostakovich, um, mm-hmm. some of the Russian composers. And it's just a, it's a very unique color, and it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful color. Um, uh, I love the, the Wiro. I know this is kind of a weird one. It's a percussion instrument. Um, so if, being a percussion instrument, I wasn't sure if it counted as auxiliary because, you know, percussionists play 200 instruments anyways, and they're not really auxiliary. That's, that is, those are their instruments. But, yeah. um, but there's just something about a Wiro I just think is, is, uh, apropos when it, when it, when it's played. It's, it's just, uh, it's a very, very cool instrument. Um, and then my last one is appropriate for this week, the Wagner tuba. Can you uh, just we... describe the Wagner tuba, yeah, a little bit, because we haven't talked yeah, about that. Absolutely, yeah. So the Wagner tuba uh, doesn't really look like like a tuba you think of, like Joe plays. Um, they are a little bit more like a French horn, and they're actually played by members of our French horn section. Um, but you'll notice them being quite different in that the bell doesn't go so much down and behind the player, but actually up and out uh, above their heads, and it's played upright. And so I would I would describe it as um, as a a a kind of uh, long lost second cousin of the horn uh, of the French horns, um, and it's a it's a different sound. It's a little bit more um, uh, how do you even describe it? It's a little bit more almost like it's coming from far away. It's not like an immediate sound. It has this this ambiance to it, um, and you don't get to hear it very often. It's it's primarily used in uh, symphonies of um, Anton Bruckner, and um, and in some pieces by uh, Richard Strauss as well. So I think anytime you have an opportunity to hear uh, a whole Wagner tuba section, that's a that's a pretty special thing, and I would I would take the opportunity. Yeah. So we have four four players playing Wagner tuba this weekend uh, on Alpine Symphony, and uh, uh, definitely looking forward to hearing those. Well, really quickly, I'll wrap up um, with my top five. As as a clarinetist here, I couldn't go without a couple of those uh, representations. So my first one, similar to the Oboe du Mor, is uh, the basset horn. Um, it's one of those that you you rarely hear it, and you rarely you're also fighting with the instrument a lot, right, Mike? It's been sitting in somebody's attic for seventy years, and you busted out to play Mozart Grand Partita or something. And uh, the reeds are a little bit different and the resistance is a little bit different, but it is such a beautiful instrument if it's played well and uh, um, just one of my favorites. Uh, Also in the clarinet family, you have to go with the contrabass clarinet. Similar for the reason of the contrabass, the contrabassoon, um, it just is one of those kind of unmistakable sounds. And when you play it, it's so fun to play. Um, it just shakes your whole face, so you can't, you can't even read the music in front of you because your eyes are just vibrating. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. Um, and then I want to go back to a program we j- did just recently with the band The Violent Femmes, and they had this whole setup of auxiliary saxophones, and I had never seen a contrabass saxophone before, and it, this thing was just a beast setup. It was huge setup. Um, which I just thought was really cool, and uh, they, that guy could play. Um, so those are my woodwind um, three, and then I wanted to kind of go down the same line as uh, the percussion. So maybe not 
technically auxiliary instruments because all percussion instruments could be considered auxiliary. Um, but in light of the upcoming performance, I'm going to say the kitchen sink <laughs> is my one of my favorite auxiliary instruments. Can't wait to hear it being played. And then also a program we're doing coming up um, in just a few weeks at the end of October, uh, Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, the Berlioz Bells, which um, are played specifically designed for this um, concert. They're large kind of church bells that are pitched in certain pitches and you have to order them and have them shipped and only a few orchestras have them in house and you have to rent them and it's just a big deal. But um, you can't you can't do Symphony Fantastic without the Berlioz bells. So I'm excited to hear those as well. Well, guys, thanks. That was a great top five. I think I learned something about the instruments too. I'm excited to look them up and and hear what they sound like and see what they look like. And maybe we'll put some links in our show notes to uh, to guide our listeners to where they can hear these various instruments. Yeah, this has been such a terrific conversation, and all these instruments—they're—they're uh, they're really, they're just fantastic. I think, and they add so much color uh, to the orchestra. But um, Stephen and Jaleel, you've been such uh, wonderful guests, and of course, wonderful colleagues. Uh, but but there's a a small matter we have to attend to before we wrap up here, and this was in the fine print of your contracts if you read it carefully, which you probably didn't, but you should have. Um, we, uh, we need each of you to answer these two very important questions, um, and, and I want you to think carefully about your answers. So question number one that each of you needs to answer is, uh, uh, if you were to walk into a bar with uh, Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven and, and order your favorite beverage to share with him, uh, could be, let's say it could be alcoholic, non-alcoholic, could be water, could be anything. What uh what would be your favorite beverage to enjoy with Mr. Beethoven? And second to that, while you're sitting there enjoying this beverage with him, what would you want to ask Beethoven? So, uh, Jaleel, I'll put you on the spot first because you're the new guy. Oh, man. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Walk into a bar. Man, I'd have to say, man, probably a whiskey sour maker's mark. And then, uh, I mean, we'd have, I'd have to start with that because I'd have to inquire why there's no, you know, trombone sonata or trombone concerto written by Beethoven. Um, that would be my first question. Actually, that would be my only question because I'd be very curious because of how well he wrote for the piano and the violin. I'd be really curious to know uh, why he did not. And if he could write a trombone sonata or concerto, what key he would pick to start solo the piece with oh i like that mm-hmm. all right steven oh jaleel i was kind of i was kind of thinking the same thing maybe a sour but but on second thought uh unfortunately this would not have existed in beethoven's time but uh, i think a, a, a bourbon and coke Ooh, would be great i uh, sit down with with ludwig um and wow just one question to ask beethoven that's that's pretty tough um I'd have to say, um, well, if I was able to use, um, if I was able to ask him a modern question uh, back in, in his time, I would ask him, with the capabilities of the modern trumpet, what would he do differently in Beethoven 10, as opposed to all of the other nine? If he had access to the instruments that we have now, how would he, how would he make that work? 
in 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 the tenth Beethoven symphony. Uh, I would I would like to know that. Love it. Awesome. Well, you guys, it's been such a, a treat getting to know you and chat with you and hear um, about this exciting upcoming program. And uh, we have such an exciting season coming up. And this is only the very beginning. And I just, I can't wait to see what happens this year. And um, thanks for being guests with us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. So remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this, your favorite podcast. And coming up this weekend, we continue our classical series with Michael Stern, Josh Jones, Mike Gordon, Jaleel Smith, Stephen Franklin, and 103 of their closest friends performing works by Richard Strauss, Adam Schoenberg, and Iman Habibi. That's this weekend, October 7th, 8th, and 9th in Hillsburg Hall at Kansas City's Kauffman Center for the Performing Arts. Tickets are still available at kcsymphony.org. Do not miss this fantastic weekend of music making. And on our next episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we welcome our first guest conductor of the season, Venezuelan Domingo Hindoyan, who will conduct the orchestra and Kansas City Symphony Chorus in a program of Mendelssohn, Brahms, and Berlioz. We'll learn all about his upbringing in Venezuela's El Sistema Music School, uh, how his mother made her way all the way from Aleppo to South America, and it's only fitting if we also ask him about his favorite kind of arepa, because we do tend to talk about food a lot on this podcast. <laughs> all next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.